0: It's uh, Colton Samba again with uh, the Inspire Podcast. Um, Today, we are extremely excited to bring you the fourth episode of our Women Transforming Manufacturing Series. Um, Today, we are joined by Sherry Matris. Um, First of all, thanks so much for taking time from your busy brand building schedule to be part of our, our Women Transforming Manufacturing Series here. Um, So you've got one of the most interesting job titles out there right now as chief growth officer for Gelmar, creator of some of the most widely known brands, CLR Clear and Tarnex in the household cleaning space, and an incredible career as an entrepreneur and leader with brands the whole world knows, like Quaker, Orbit Gum, and Javale Coffee. And I probably mispronounced that, but the audience knows um could you give us a quick background and a bit about your current role
1: sure thank you so much for having me great to be here colton and dana um first of all i i would it's javalia cafe but that's okay um uh, mispronounces it and uh, even internal people at craft used to um so yeah a little bit on my background um uh, when i was at northwestern as an undergrad, I don't, I'm not even sure why, but I somehow decided I wanted to go into advertising. And it's kind of funny cause I took an advertising class. It was probably one of the worst classes I ever had there, but somehow I still decided I wanted to go into advertising. And so I pursued an internship at BBDO Chicago, um, ironically later working on the Wrigley business. Um, and I really loved it. I worked for a great woman who was very inspirational to me. And that sort of solidified for me that I wanted to go into marketing and advertising and then after I graduated I went to work at Leo Burnett and then at Focon and Belding and was doing my master's at Northwestern in advertising at night and as part of that program I kind of got to see that even though it was called masters in advertising at the time um, it's now called inter uh, marketing communications um, I learned about this much broader world of marketing and I got to see all the different functions that a marketer does on a day-to-day basis. And so I kind of said, I want to do that. I don't want to just do this advertising thing. I want to do all those different things. And I wanted more ownership, more responsibility for the brands and, and more ability to build and grow them over time. And so I think that's really what drove me into the world of marketing and advertising.
0: You know, first of all, go Wildcats, uh, you know, hey. incredible place. Um, you know, so there's something really interesting there. And, you know, you kind of said that, that you jumped into an internship and, and sounded like you had a pretty strong mentor that really kind of opened your eyes there. Um, how did that kind of steer some of your decision to start to experience all these different parts of marketing that just grew and grew?
1: Um, you know, again, I, I learned from her the importance of cross-functional teaming, of working together, the importance of the consumer being at the center of everything we do. And then I kind of got to see that this opportunity of working in marketing and advertising was a, it was a building process as well as a creative process, both things that really resonated with me. And then I really loved the opportunity of being able to you know build brands that can withstand the test of time like Wrigley had again I was working on the Wrigley business but seeing them grow and flourish over time so that it's not like you're just doing something for the short term but it's you're building something that's going to continue to grow and keep on growing over time and and seeing that with you know some of the brands that I've worked on has been truly exciting.
2: You know, um, Sherry, your earlier career stops, as we've talked about, was at Wrigley, where you worked as part of the team to introduce Orbit, which was such a disruptor in that category. And, you know, what was that like, taking such a giant swing out of the gate in your career? And and what were some of the learnings you had from that?
1: Um, Well, Orbit was truly a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and, um, and so unique and exciting for, for both myself and the team. And I think what was so amazing about Orbit is it was really building from scratch a business within a company, like a whole new business in a hundred plus year old company. Um, and a couple of things that, that really contributed not only to the experience, but also to the success is it was a total team effort. And secondly, it was all based on insights. We started with Trident Chewers. We started with the objective of growing Wrigley's share within the sugar-free segment because sugar-free was growing faster than sugar at that point in time. And Wrigley had a much greater share in sugar. So the opportunity was to grow our business in sugar-free. And we had already the number one brand in sugar-free with extra gum, but the number two brand was Trident. So the strategy was, how do we beat Trident? And the way we were gonna do that was through superior product, superior package, and superior communication. And again, amazing cross-functional team. I had product developers that are the best bar none, especially in gum, as you can imagine, after 100 years of history at Wrigley. So they knew how to build an amazing product that was superior to Trident, for Trident okay. Tours, you know, among Trident Tours, when tested amongst them, it outperformed Trident, which is a tough bar, but they knew how to do that. I had packaging engineers that had been with the company for 20 or 30 years, and they had drawings in their files for well over 10 years of creative packaging ideas that they were just dying to unleash. And so when I came in and I said, okay, We need to be tried on how are we going to have a superior product, a superior package, and superior communication. They were like ecstatic to share these ideas with me. And so, you know, I remember this guy, Stan Kopecki, sitting in my office and unfolding all of these ideas that he'd been hiding for like 10 years. And so I said, great, how quickly can you prototype these and let's get them in front of consumers. And we did, and we took them to focus groups and and the package selection, that envelope package, which was very iconic to the brand, but new at the time, that was an idea he'd had for 10 plus years and nobody really cared to pay attention. And then of course my agency, BBDO Chicago, was a great partner. And they also had been doing very conservative work. I mean, even when I was an intern at BBDO working on the Wrigley business, I helped create a book that was sent out globally that defined how Wrigley did advertising. And BBDO Chicago was dying to break out of that mold. And so with, we had new leadership. I, I forgot to mention, Bill Wrigley Jr. had risen to be CEO right before I came on board at 38 years old, and he wanted to do things different from his dad. And he then brought on board senior leadership, the SVP of the Americas who hired me, Gary McCullough came from Procter & Gamble, and all of them wanted to push the envelope in every way. So when you have the right leadership that wants to push the envelope, you have the right people who really know how to create product and packaging that is unique and superior, and then communicating it in a superior way, in a unique, differentiated way. Because, you know, we were in a really crowded category. We owned 10 brands alone in the gum category, trying to break through. I felt like we can't just go out there with, you know, here's a piece of gum. It had to be exceptional and it really had to stand out and break through. And we went through rounds and rounds and rounds of creative before we actually landed on the Orbit campaign. And uh, and then, you know, even when we, when we took it into production, I think there were people that were nervous and not quite sure how it was going to do, but, you know, we ended up winning several Effies and... Um, and lots of other awards for the campaign. So it was an exciting time, but it was, it was really about this collaborative effort and about really setting a clear strategy based on insights.
0: Now, well, and, and who, can, who can forget those ads, right? Like those were some of the most memorable like CPG food ads. Like well, like you said, a lot of awards, so it's not surprising. Like that, that smile with the shine Will never I be yeah. <laughs> you know like it's so exactly you do that, people automatically think you know so it's it's yeah it's, it was an incredible campaign that um you know obviously made a huge impact well and and you said something you know and, and you've hit on it a couple times with like focus groups and the importance of of customer insights, I mean kind of as your story unfolds there you know and you have such a huge win at Wrigley you went and disrupted some other really interesting categories, you know, like greeting cards, you know, with with a, recycled greeting cards play. And, you know, obviously I I won't try and pronounce it again, but uh, you know, also disrupted one of the biggest categories in the world, Um, you know, that uh, well in in the delivery mechanism for one of the most important categories in the world, Um, you know, and, and then on trend nutrition too. Right. So you've, accomplish all these these amazing things in very difficult categories. But back to that idea like like customer insights, what is it that, that really pushed you into that and drew you in so much? You know, is really that voice of the customer and and looking at what they have to say.
1: I I've always believed and, and it's hard for me to say where it came from exactly, but I, I've always believed that insights are the critical component to having great marketing and great innovation. You've got to listen to the consumer and I think a lot of it, it's about humility. It's about being humble enough to say we don't know everything as marketers. We used to joke around at Wrigley that we literally were in the white ivory tower and you have to get out of that white ivory tower to see what the people on the street really think and I've seen it as a downfall too many times in both big and in small companies where you know, sometimes in big companies, you'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and gather insights and get these great research studies and then somebody at a senior level thinks they know better and they're like, yeah, that's not true. I don't believe that. Let's just do this. And you're like, all right. I mean, we asked a thousand consumers and this is what they told us. Really, you wanna ignore that? But I've seen it many times. And, you know, and then I think smaller companies, a lot of times they tend to not want to invest in the research because they're like, oh, we don't have money. But honestly, it's a lot more expensive if you don't get the insights. The critical part is getting in front of it and understanding up front what does the, the, the consumer want. And I used to say it Wrigley all the time. I still say it. You know, it's real, marketing's really easy. Just ask the consumer what they want and then give it to them in product packaging communication. That's it, so simple, right? It's not that easy, right? But, but it is, it's about gathering the right data, asking the right questions, listening to what they say and their answers, and then actually enacting upon it. And I think people fall down in all those various steps. But, but for me, that's what I always thought and maybe it's one of the reasons that I was drawn to CPG is I feel like CPG has always done the best job of relying on insights and it's a little sad and scary for me today to see all these companies eliminating insights departments or resources or cutting back budgets because that is what sets you apart is if you can get at what does that consumer want and what's underlying it and what's the emotional connection that's what's going to allow you to set yourself apart. And and again, that's why I always felt CPG did such a better job of that than other industries, that other industries didn't go that deep into understanding the needs and the desires and the emotional connection that helped create that bond with the consumers. And so I I hope CPG will recover from that and, and ultimately see that insights are the critical component. And I and I think other companies are starting to get there and to understand that that's what you really, you really have to understand why and how and what they want and desire and and get underneath that in order to have a successful business that will live on over time. Otherwise, it's a short-term play. It's a fad. It's just it's an idea that you like, but it may not be what a broad group of people that's actually willing to pay money for want.
2: Well, Sherry, you know, just listening to you talk about insights and connecting to the customer, um, you know, that won me over, but for those that may be a little harder to convince, what are some of the more powerful or interesting ways that you've seen this data, you know, change things? How have you seen using those analytics to steer that those decisions really have an impact?
1: Yeah, I mean, there have been so many ways and, you know, I'm, I'm very much clearly a, a person who believes in insights, but um, I'll tell you, you know, even big companies struggle with having the money to do what they need to do to get at the insights and then how to use it. Um, so, and it's funny, sometimes in bigger companies, they almost want you to spend more money in order to believe the data that you're going to get. Whereas, you know, in a small company, it's like, well, we don't have the money. So that's the thing that they cut. Um, but I'll give you an example of, you know, how we, we leverage data in a scrappy ish way. I say scrappy because it's PepsiCo. So, um, but it's, you know, in a way that really led us down a path. And helped us get a lot of value out of it. So um, I got promoted into the role of heading up breakthrough innovation at PepsiCo for the global nutrition group, which is a really, really wide space. Okay, Sherry, go create an innovation pipeline for global nutrition. Go, and you know, and so I was sort of like, where do you start? And so to me, the natural thing is to kind of break it down. You know, you've got this big thing called global nutrition. Well. What are the things that are under that? What are the, the segments of needs, those broader buckets of consumer needs for global yeah. nutrition? And, you know, you can all guess at them, but we might be wrong. And so if we guess at them and then we start ideating against our guesses, each step of the way, you get further away from the truth. So I said to my boss, what we really need is a global segmentation study that identifies the, the global segments of nutrition needs. And he said, okay, great, how much would that cost? And I said, oh, two to four million. And he said, We even PepsiCo, we can't afford that. So I was like, okay, well, and you know, what can we do to get at that? So my Insights partner and I worked together and came up with this idea to leverage some existing data. We had collected it as a company, 59 attributes across, I think it was like 23 countries. Um, about nutrition, so it reflected consumers' attitudes, behaviors, desires, all that about nutrition in general. So we took that data, we hired an external analytics firm and brought them in, and they took this data and, for lack of a better way of explaining it, they threw it in a pot, they stirred it up, and then they let the data create its own correlations and create its own segments. So we identified these need state segments in global nutrition. And then we prioritized them based on what we had said in our strat plan that year that we wanted to achieve as a business unit. And so we identified, I think it was like four or five that we were gonna hone in on. And so they were created by these attributes. We named them based on what attributes clustered together naturally. And then we went out into the marketplace and this is global. So we traveled around to China, Brazil, Mexico, UK, Canada, et cetera. And we recruited consumers that matched those segment attributes. And then we talked to them. We did focus groups. We went into their homes and did ethnographies. We saw how they prepared breakfast. We asked them what their day was like. We followed them around into stores and we learned about what nutrition meant to them and what that segment was like and that helped bring those segments to life so like you know one of our segments was like nourishing ritual and you would see the nuances by country like in china for instance it was very routinized like every morning my son and daughter in law bring my grandchild over and the mother the you know the grandmother makes breakfast for the whole family and she makes like uh you know a, a big pot of um, something, and everybody sits around the table together and they eat it, and then the son and daughter in law go off to work, and the grandma watches the the sun every day and you know these are stories that we heard in people's apartments in China, and then in Brazil, you know they're very routinized. We heard from so many people in Brazil, I eat three Brazil nuts every day, not two, not four, they eat three. And we heard it from so many people, it was crazy. So, But that's their routine, that's their nourishing ritual. And we also saw people making smoothies. Every day I make a smoothie. How do you make a smoothie? Well, whatever fruits and vegetables I found at the market the day before, I have them in my fridge, I pull them out, I cut them up, I put them in this blender, I do this every morning. So it was really interesting to learn how you know, we, we really understood what nourishing ritual meant on a, a higher level, but then how it came to life, country by country. Then, so so, what did we do with all this knowledge, right? It's like, well, great, now you understand consumers in Mexico and Brazil and China and Canada, that's excellent, but what are you gonna do with it? Well, we created a video out of all of it, the agency that we hired to do our innovation work with us, brought it to life in a video, we shared it on telepresence, and we sent it out to all of our global counterparts And then we pulled all the global team together in a big ideation session here in Chicago. They all flew in. We actually had people from Brazil and China and Mexico and France and the UK flying in and spending the night and attending an ideation session in Chicago. And we showed the videos again. And we went segment by segment. So, you know, nourishing ritual, we would show the segment, talk about the consumer, and then go into breakout groups and come up with ideas. And we walked out of there with, you know, a couple hundred global ideas. And then, you know, the testing process, because it's global, is it's it's crazy because you've got to test it in multiple countries. And, you know, remember, this all includes translations. It includes product mock-ups that are translated as well into all these different, you know, Portuguese and Russian and Chinese. I mean, it was quite a a trip to get all this together and pull it together. But, you know, so we did some quantitative, then we did some qualitative, then we did some more quantitative. And at the end of the day, I think we ended up with about six ideas that resonated around the world. And then that helped us put those as priority in our pipeline as new ideas to start building and chartering and developing around the world. So, you know, I, I, I hope that answers your question, but that's- Oh, it did. Yeah, absolutely.
2: You know, kind of coming out of that, you know, you mentioned that there, there was a lot of data that was available that really hadn't been activated yet. And yep. I think a lot of organizations struggle with that where, you know, we're working on capturing all this data, especially now that you know, digital data is so prevalent. It's like, I've got all this data. Um, You know, how would you coach an organization that was perhaps struggling a little bit with analysis paralysis, um, you know, on kind of moving forward to capture meaningful data?
1: yeah I think I think the biggest challenge that I've always seen is um, and whether it's big or small is getting companies to understand the value of the data and to invest in it and then once you've invested it, it's having the right people who who know how to use it and who have the time and the ability to to break it down and analyze it and be able to to put it to good use I think you know big companies struggle with the politics of it. Honestly, they, they have the money, they have the data. Um, and what ends up happening a lot of times is they go out there, you know, like a study like I was talking about. And, you know, there are others for sure that we did at PepsiCo where, you know, we, somebody would ask a question at a senior level and you'd go out and you'd spend all this time and money gathering the data and pulling it together and maybe six months to a year to execute all this. And then by the time the results are coming in, that person leaves and a new person's in and they don't care at all about this and that's not their question and they don't believe the findings. And so you're ending up discarding all this data. So I think a lot of it is get politics out of the way and stay focused on what is the business need. And honestly, I think part of it is motivating people, especially in big companies, the right way so that they actually care about the business and not just about moving up the corporate ladder. In small companies, I, you know, I've alluded to this a, a little bit before, it's, it's about really investing and knowing that it's so important to invest because they don't know. You know, when, when I went to the startup um, that I was with, there were six people on the team. None of them had ever worked in CPG ever. They were all very young. They had no experience, and yet here they were founding this company, Um, and we were part of this uh, food incubator, and all of the other, there were like 10 companies in the incubator, and even the company who was hosting the incubator was a relatively small company that virtually had no experience, and nobody seemed to really know why they needed data, what to do with it, um, and then why they should invest in it. You know, and when I would talk even with, you know, my founders about it and I would say, we really need to do this project or that. And they would say, well, I mean, don't we kind of, can't we just kind of do that? I mean, we kind of know. And I was like, no, we really don't. And I think it's explaining and getting them to understand what it's gonna drive. And so, and it's sometimes it's like that the leadership has to take a leap of faith and say, okay. So I, I think small companies for sure, it'd be important to, to find external consultants to bring in who have, there are tons of them out there. And I have a lot of friends who've come out of CPG and, um, or, and bec- or other industries and become insights consultants. And they know the resources that are available. They know how to use it and they can help guide and teach and show you the value of what you're gonna get for it and how you can use it once you, you've gotten this study or piece of research
0: done. No, um, I think, you know, what's really interesting about that is like, you know, making sure that you you kind of stick to it and like data and insights become a foundational part of the, the operation. I imagine like that story you told, I mean, if you knew you were going by looking at some existing data, you know, stirring it in the pot, I love that analogy, and then it would turn into six ideas right but that's really funneling infinite possibilities at the global scale down to six that are the right one I'm sure it crystallized at that point you know and that's almost like this intersection of, of data and insights and product development and R&D you know but, but you continue to reference like how important it is to really get that that buy-in so like using data for sales and marketing is one thing but how would you encourage companies to make it such a part of of their operations and DNA that it steers product development and engineering and R&D? You know, it, which really I think we define that as innovation, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think it has to start at the top. It has to start with leadership that believes in the research and listens to it and um and believes in, in in not only investing in it but in acting upon it and you know i started i talked a little bit about gelmar when i started um, about a year and a half ago and i i said to allison my ceo you know the first thing we have to do is this foundational piece of insights work and in like i just said she initially was like oh well, we we've done that before we've done things like that and i said yeah we're g- i think this is going to be more extensive and um you know luckily she was willing to go along for the ride and say okay well she knows she thinks she knows what she's doing i'm going to listen to her and so you know we we started on this piece of research and um we did this this whole foundational piece of research with uh starting with focus groups and shop-alongs and then we went in we took all the learnings from that and that set into a big quantitative survey which we was actually serving multiple purposes. And I think that's also part of the key is how you can get research to do multiple jobs with the same piece of research so that you're not having to field 75 different studies, but you can do one big thing that will live for multiple years. I'm, I'm not going to put a, a time frame on it, but, you know, so we, we did this qualitative work that fed into the quant. The quant ended up being 2,250 consumers, and we did that broad of a study so that we could segment it. And it served the purpose of not only an ANU, an awareness and usage study, for the category, the brand, the competitors, helping us understand why people clean, what they clean with, what's important to them when they're cleaning, you know, what what rooms are most important to clean, those kinds of things, and then also created a category level segmentation study, which similar to the work that we did, the scrappy way at PepsiCo, um, we did, we identified segments within household cleaning of needs, and then honed in on the one segment that is now our target audience for CLR, for our brand. And then that drove us into creating what I call a brand architecture, which is just a one-page document that formally outlines what the brand stands for. Who's the target audience? What is the the key benefit that the brand stands for? What are those RTBs under it? What are the values of the consumer and how do those marry up? And then ultimately what I call the brand-defining idea, which is sort of like the one pithy statement that defines the brand. So like for CLR, we are about the obsessive pursuit of clean. That's at the end of the day, that is what we are all about. And um, and there's also, so it's about efficacy, but there's also a safety element that's woven into it to make sure that you can be obsessive because it's safe as well. So there's, those are kind of the key tenets that our brand stands for. And that all came out of the research. And then that all drove us to our communication strategy, which then spawned our new packaging, which we launched in August across our entire portfolio. Um, New communication, which we went on air with TV, new website, digital, social, a whole integrated campaign um, against this new target and against this new strategy and that that launched last March. Um, And so that was all based on the findings of this research and our brand architecture And then that also spawned innovation ideas, which we are now in market with. We're launching right now, we're gonna start shipping in like two weeks with six new items, two new platform ideas, and they each have three SKUs under them. And then um, that also drove us to an entire innovation pipeline build, which we've now created platforms of ideas similar to the PepsiCo example, these platforms that'll keep on building over time. And we've got about a three to five year pipeline that's already outlined. And we're now starting um, the whole innovation development process against the next idea, which we'll be launching next year. So all of this came out of this big, and yes, for a company our size, pretty pricey piece of research, but the benefits are so much greater than the spend because if we hadn't done this, we would just throw ideas out there and either you're gonna get small ideas because that's generally what you you come up with just off the top of your head when you're not really digging into what the consumer wants and building it and then therefore, they don't have the staying power that these bigger, broader platform ideas have or you're gonna get ideas that are gonna be here today, gone tomorrow because you're you're not really understanding what the consumer wants so the possibilities the the cost if you don't do the research is greater is basically my overall message if you do it up front you spend some money up front you get the insights you build it into everything you're doing about the brand that's a better spend than it is if you are wasting money by slotting it and advertising it and Paying for promotional costs and then it gets delisted in a year because it wasn't really a very well thought through idea to begin with so that's that's what i've all that i guess that's to me why research is like that it's so critical and it's that's where you got to start and then you got to end there too
0: yeah no and and to kind of circle back and I again I, I think i can predict one of your potential answers here because like you know but but you've been everywhere from some of the the biggest, most recognizable brands on the planet to small startups, like you said, right? And like a, like a small incubated startup. How has that range of experience like made you a better marketer and leader? And like, as you're telling that story, it's kind of funny, as I'm thinking about that, like we have to do it right, but we need to figure out the way to go and get that 360 view of customers in a way that, that is the right way and broad, but also very utilitarian and is gonna provide the greatest long-term return on investment, right? So it's, That's like you almost look easy. at it where it's like that level, being very practical and pragmatic about it, but at the same time, doing it in that big broad way. So I, I can assume that might have been part of your answer. If it's not, I apologize. But <laughs> yeah, I, I'm almost repeating, so I internalize this myself because it's so fascinating. But yeah, I guess I'll get back to the question there. It's like, like how is that range of, of brand experience really shaped you as, as a marketer and a leader? Like what were the differences and, and how do those experiences on one side translate to the other?
1: Yeah, it, it's funny because um, I think both big and small sort of have their pros and cons and and they both see the pros and cons of the other one differently um you know when i left pepsico i i was really focused on going to a startup because i felt like um, i wanted to do more that building that creating you know kind of back to like what i had done when i built orbit and i saw these early stage companies as being that opportunity but you know like i said i sort of saw that a lot of these companies really didn't know or understand the basics um whereas the big companies they definitely do you know like they I mean, I have to say, PepsiCo, Craft, they do, they hire people who have the experience, have the knowledge, they grow them within the organization. There are really very smart people that work in these companies that have worked in them for a lot of years. And as they rise, they teach the more junior people so that you have this new class that's, that's coming up. But, um, but they, they don't, as I've said before, they don't always get out of their own way you know, they're they're playing politics. And a lot of times people are more motivated on what's gonna grow my career rather than what's gonna grow the business. And so that to me is sort of their downside. And it's funny, I actually, um, when I was at the startup and I, I went to lunch with one of my former PepsiCo colleagues and he said, well, you know, these small companies, they really know how to do it, right? And I looked at him, I said, no, you cannot be saying this to me because the big companies actually do know how to do it right. They just don't always do it. The small companies don't know how to do it, but they don't necessarily want to listen to people from big companies to teach them how to do it. So, you know, it's kind of this catch 22 because they, they do see, and it, and it is true, the big companies are not performing as well today. The smaller, scrappier companies in a lot of ways are, are beating them mostly because they're lucky they guess at what consumers want because they don't have the insights or the data. So you kind of do have to blend it together. I think the small companies really need people in them that have that foundational classical training that understand best practices, understand what resources are even available to answer the questions that you have, know how to use that when you get that data but also know how to do it in a scrappy way, because there are certainly people that come out of big companies that only know how to do things within a lot of process and with a lot of money. And so you gotta be able to scale it back and say, okay, well, how would we do this, but how can I do that without having a million dollars to do it? What if I only had a couple thousand dollars to do it? How might I be able to answer that question? And then the big companies, they. I don't want to say act like a small company. That's sort of like a mantra that you hear a lot in the big companies. I don't necessarily think that's right because again, the small companies don't necessarily know what they're doing. They're just kind of like, uh, let's try that. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's getting rid of the politics which pervade in big companies and generally are less prevalent in small companies. And I think the small companies are more focused you know, a lot of times their founders or even the most junior people have a stake in the company. So they do care about actually growing the business, not just getting to the VP level or the SVP level or whatever. You know, It's, it's more focused on what are we actually going to do to grow the company. So I think they, they both have shifts that can help them do better and, uh, and make themselves better.
2: Well, Sherry, to you know we, you've talked a lot about big versus small organizations and what their strengths are and you've touched on it I think but could you just summarize for us and for our listeners what is the one thing that you think each of these groups could learn from each other? Like, What what a big company could learn from a smaller company and what a smaller company could learn from a bigger company. The one thing.
1: So I think big companies could learn to get out of their own way and don't let politics be the motivating factor and really figure out how to motivate your teams to drive the business. And, you know, even like at Kraft, we had a value that was like, act like an owner, but In a company that size, it's pretty tough to act like an owner. So how do you actually motivate people and reward them for really thinking about the business rather than about their own careers and and try to separate that? In a small company, I think the best thing that can benefit them is bring in people who do have that foundational big CPG experience enough levels. Because a lot of times they'll bring in people, you know, that have been like a manager level and make them the VP. Well, they probably don't have that broad enough experience from a manager level to be able to impart that vision or overarching knowledge or even know enough about what resources and tools are available to benefit. So they need to bring in people, whether it's on a board or whether it's internal or whether it's external, you know, consultants, that can help guide them and teach them best practices and principles, and introduce them to tools and resources that can help grow the business.
0: I think there's there's a lot of value there, like you know, being able to think big but still act small. But there's also, and you you references earlier in the conversation too, like having the humility. To know that you don't have all the answers, right, and bring in those external consultants and take what the customers are saying very seriously. Yeah, I think that's great information for the audience. Thanks so much for that. Now, you know, let's. I think we we gave a lot of a lot of great analysis there. Let, let's shift back on you a little bit more. Again, we want to move through the, the the hero story here, you know, and and kind of going from the past and and you know what you've gleaned from from your experiences through your Career stops to to today, right? Anyone who's had the task of tackling a, a disgusting bathroom or grimy kitchen, um, myself included, um, you know knows knows the brands that you represent now. Um, you know, in, in clear and Tarnex, um, but kind of the juxtaposition there, going from the the food category to household cleaning products, I mean, what what was that like?
1: You know, it's funny, when I interviewed at Delmar, my now marketing director said to me, um, so why do you want to make the move from food to household cleaning? And I, I hadn't really thought of it like that to me. To me, it's all CPG. So I just thought, it's just another category in CPG. And yeah, you're right, I have mostly worked in food, but what's the difference? Um, A lot of it translated, and some of it definitely didn't, and what didn't, some of it surprised me. Um, I think from a communications perspective, it was largely the same process that I've gone through, no matter what category you work in. And there are definitely nuances by category, but, you know, moving from pizza to coffee to greeting cards to uh, oatmeal, it's not all that different. And just in terms of the the process of understanding the target audience and what are their needs and desires and what is the benefit that they're seeking and what are the RTDs that support it. That all was pretty much the same and we followed a very similar process in defining our brand strategy and our communication strategy for CLR Clear that we have for other brands. So that was pretty straightforward and definitely translated what was really different for me was the innovation process honestly and as we've gotten into product development with these new products that we're about to start shipping in a couple of weeks um you know we've been living this development process for a couple of years um first of all you know gelmar just being a small company they had never really done innovation the way that i had done it so Um, with a lot of the testing and the research and bringing in the consumer aspects. I mean, they test the products. Obviously, they know they work. We have amazing products. And we've had, we had an amazing developer who um, retired uh, right when I started, right after I started. Um, She's like 85 years old. And she's been working with the company for 30 plus years. And so she took retirement, which was good for her. But then, you know, we, we had to find somebody. So I actually scanned my network and I found some um, consultants in the R&D space. And luckily they came from big CPG household cleaning companies, Clorox and P&G. So they were able to help impart to me the differences of developing in household cleaning versus in food, which was a learning. So I, I definitely learned a lot in terms of The testing of household cleaning products, the the development timeline unto itself, the regulatory environment, um, the benchtop compounding, which was really different. You know, in food, you develop a formula, and, you know, the guys are working in the test kitchen and they're creating like a bar or a piece of gum or whatever it is. And, you know, you can see it, you can chew it, you can eat it you know, we really never saw a product. I I still haven't actually seen a final product. (laughs) When it starts shipping, I guess I'll see it. So, and we, what we, what I thought would be an easy transition was from the handoff from R&D to manufacturing. And we had our manufacturing guy, part of the cross-functional team meetings from March of this year, you know, every week we meet, and he's been part of it. But when it came time for the developer to say, okay, here you go, here's the formula card. And then the manufacturing facility has to start making it. Um, there were actually some challenges that came up where, which I never would have anticipated because I don't know anything about chemicals and household cleaning. But you know, if you think of it like salad dressing, like if you put all these chemicals in a bottle and it sits over time, sometimes they separate. And I didn't think that, I mean, a bar doesn't do that. A piece of gum doesn't do that. So I never really thought that was an issue. So I was like, well, why aren't they making the product? Where are the manufacturing trials? And they were like, well, we're still compounding it. We're still trying to figure out how to get it to stay as one entity so that we get all the ingredients into the bottle at one time. And I was like, oh, well, like how long does it have to sit? Well, why is this so challenging? Like I just I never anticipated that. So there was definitely a learning curve there, and I think we're going to do a launch and learn for this project in January, where after we start shipping, the whole cross-functional team is going to come together, and we're going to do a, a key learnings on what worked, what didn't work, what could we do better for the future, so that we we have that and we can and we can use it in what we're going to do next. Um, So there were some things that, you know, were definitely new and nuances and, you know, even like getting it through the EPA. We have almost all of our products we like, we want to be safer choice, EPA safer choice designated, which means it's kind of like the toughest certification you can get because the EPA is looking at every single ingredient and saying every single one of these ingredients is safer and uses safer chemistry. And so... You know, that whole process was another one like, I don't know, how do you, how do you take it to the EPA? And even though uh, Gelmar has done it in the past, um, it was mostly handled, I think, by this woman who is d- the developer, the 85-year-old woman. And the guys that, that I was working with, I mean, they knew how to do it, but they were like, is that us? Do you have a team that does that? I mean, they came from Clorox and P&G, so I'm sure there was a whole department at those companies that that's all they did. So, you know, we all kind of learned along the way and our developer is amazing. And he, he worked it through the EPA and we did get Safer Choice designation on our new Everyday Clean product. So that's exciting. And then the other one, Active Clear, which is a probiotics, I can tell you because it's launching in two weeks. So the probiotic face cleaner, um, that the EPA won't actually approve for Safer Choice anything with probiotics, but we had to take it through the USDA to get bio-preferred status, and it did pass, but like all of these were processes that I had never even heard of or had any knowledge of how they worked. So that was more the challenging part of all of this uploading applications and getting it through the process that was new to me. Okay,
0: yeah, no, and that, um, but the interesting thing, like, like obviously like any, Resourceful professional. It seems like you know you you figured it out, but it's safe to say that like the anchoring element that, and I think you hit on this really at the beginning. There was that no, and you referenced this earlier. It's easy. Just listen to your customers, right?
2: <laughs> like that's
0: that's what what allowed you to move so so well, you know, and and to kind of go on that that idea of, of well, let's double down on on differences here you know, we've got a lot of marketers in, in the audience, but we've also got a lot of industrial marketers in the audience. And we know that um, in the portfolio that you currently represent there, there is a pretty substantial B2B product there um, in clear pro. So again, to, to double down on that differences thread, what, what do you see as being the difference between like a, a B2C brand, you know, in a B2B brand and how maybe you listen to customers in those two segments or or categories, what, what does that look like? Or are they more similar than people think? I, I don't
2: know.
1: It's a great question. And, you know, one of the reasons I came to Delmar was to gain that B2B experience because I, I really had none of it. You know, I mean, you, as you know, my career has largely been in retail and B2C. And so it was, that was a, it's been a learning curve for me there as well. And I would say, I think the big difference is in B2C, you're very focused on this end user and who they are and understanding them. And even though it's a broad group of people, you wanna boil it down to like one individual and really target in on that one individual. Like we call our target audience on the B2B side, sorry, B2C side, Monica. And we talk a lot all day long, my marketing team, my sales team, even my R&D guys, my supply chain guys, about Monica and about delivering what Monica wants. On the B2B end, you not only don't even sometimes know who that end user is, but it could be such a wide range of people and uses and needs that they have and you have so many people in the middle there's all these layers between the manufacturer and getting all the way to the end user that like i said sometimes you don't even know who they are you don't know what they're using the product for it's hard to even figure out who's using it and what they're using it for and you have to have one message that resonates with this whole chain of people All the way along the way, because there could be multiple distributors between us and them. So that to me was, and that's kind of like the the biggest challenge. And you know, but what I will say is, I have relied on, okay, how would we do this in the B2C world, in order to determine what we should do in the B2B world. So um, I have a, a guy who leads my B2B sales team. Um, great guy. He's come out of some B2B companies, um, pretty big ones, some of our competitors. Um, You know, but also when you're in a big company, and you're in like a specific role like sales, you're not necessarily seeing like how the sausage gets made. So and he was tasked with almost starting this B2B business from scratch. I mean, we had a very small b2b business when i you know when we started before he started and now and even now we still have a relatively small b2b business and what gelmar historically had done was take one group of products and the same group of products they were trying to sell to retail and also to b2b and you know one of um, my learnings early on was that wasn't gonna fly So the first thing we did is we recreated the B2C line, we repackaged it, we've tried to make it more consumer looking, more approachable, less industrial. And now we're doing the same thing on the B2B side. So the first thing we had to do was identify what segments we're even talking to. And, you know, when I first started, I would have conversations with my B2B sales leader, and every day it was a different segment. And it was like, oil rigs one day, food manufacturing the next day, janitorial the next day. And I was like, oh, my God, like my head was spinning. And how do you create marketing materials or even messaging for such a wide array? We have to figure out, like, what are those priority segments that we're going to go after? And so I said, Okay, well, if I was at PepsiCo, we were going to enter new categories. How would we do this? Well, we would say, what's the size of the prize and what's our right to win? So that's what i did so i said um, to, i brought in my junior marketer and i said all right i want you we and again this goes back to research we had no money because i don't come out of that world i don't even know what the tools and resources are to use in that world so i've been pursuing my network to find hey when you were at scj leading uh you know the b2b group what kind of research tools did you use and calling people to ask them? Because I don't know that world. So, um, you know, we we said we sat out and we looked at all of these different segments, and we last year prioritized six. Initially, I think there were 21, and we called it to six. And now this year we're focused on four priority segments. And then within those, we, so we have an overarching CLR clear pro message what we stand for on the pro side is the hardworking, safer solution so kind of our two core benefits brought together were about efficacy and we're about safety and that's our right to win because we have this EPA safer choice designation on a lot of our products so that allows us to be safer and a lot of people especially in the B2B world really care about that because there's all this stuff about how you dispose of the product and what it's doing to the environment and what it's doing to the people who work with it on a day-to-day basis. So that's a real benefit and we work hard. So um, so that's our overarching. And then we've got these four segments, and then we're designing product lines under these four priority segments to be for the right customers and relabel them so that it's clear that they're for the industrial or for the automotive world or for the agriculture world. So that it's, you know, it's about that right customer and end user. And even though we're going through all these distributors, they're trying to get it into that automotive end user, for instance. So it's, that's what, you know, I've definitely leveraged what I know from the B2C world and brought it to the B2B world. And, um, trying to build it out though, but thinking about it like I would a B2C consumer, who is that customer? What do they need? What do they want? How do we give it to them and make them feel that it's for them and not for someone? like They don't want to buy that bottle that's under their wife's sink they, to clean the factory with. They want to think that this is for the industrial world. So let's give them a line of products that are specifically designed for cleaning factories. So that's kind of, it's been a learning experience, but I I do think there are things that you can leverage from both sides to help feed each other.
0: Absolutely. I like that that idea, like data to steer segmentation, segmentation to, you know, kind of steer customer communication and, and product fit. It's exactly, like, you yeah. know, the way you describe both of those processes, how parallel they really are. You know.
1: Exactly. And and we're actually about to embark on the B2B end on a similar piece of foundational research that we did, like we did on the B2C end last year in nineteen. So in twenty-one, we're gonna do some qual and some quant for the B2B world. But the first step is I gotta find research partners because I don't know who they are. <laughs>
2: so. I've heard you say, you know, that Gelmar has such a huge range of products that they they offer. And as you're trying to integrate yourself, you know, and get up to speed on that full range, how are you using some of the data that you've gotten to date to really kind of? into product development and innovation on a day-to-day basis.
1: So that's a great question and again it's we're we're being i guess smart about how we use it so that we're not doing tons of research but there's always new pieces that you you have to engage in in order to to get to the answers that you need for innovation because no, I, we were just talking about this yesterday, no innovation project is the same. There's never two that are exactly the same. And so you cannot anticipate all the answers. And when you get halfway down the path with an innovation project, all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, I don't know. How do we talk about probiotics? Do the consumers understand why they clean? You know?" And so then we we've done things like fielding a survey monkey just to get at this really small answer. But Overarchingly, again, we, we use this foundational piece of insights that we did in, tw- in 2019 as the starting off point. And this understanding of Monica, our target, and all that has fed into building our innovation pipeline. Um, so we, we started with that. We did that. We brought on this um, Spencer Hall, who introduced me to you, Dana. Yes, that's um, all. uh my good friend for 20 years. And um, he is a, a genius when it comes to innovation. And they have built some really cool proprietary tools, which again, also makes it a good value for the, the research that you're gonna get. Because not only do you get John and his brilliance, but you also get access to these tools. So we started off with our research. We brought John and, and his team in and they actually helped us craft our brand architecture so that we defined our strategy and they were part of that. And then they took our um, from our foundational insights work. We created a typing tool, which allowed us to recruit for Monica, and we used that in John's proprietary. Um, on it's called Sounding Boards. It's an online qualitative platform, and we used that, and we were able to screen for these Monica's. Then, as we started innovation we actually, um, we brought in some subject matter experts. We used another one of John's tools called Transforum, which is an online ideation platform. And we, so we could have internal, external partners like agencies, brokers, and then John brought in some subject matter experts. So people who've worked in household cleaning at places like P&G or Clorox or Reckett Um people who, in like R&D or supply chain, people who own cleaning companies, like, uh, you know, janitorial services. Um, so we had a wide array of people that were participating in ideation, and then this is pre-COVID, we actually held an in-person ideation session, and it was like January, February of this year, um, where we all came together in our offices at Gelmar, and we, John facilitated, and we came up with these hundreds of ideas again, and then. As a team, we looked at technical feasibility, financial viability, and strategic fit of the ideas, and we pulled them to a smaller group, um, ultimately put them into some quantitative back into the sounding board online qualitative to get more um, deep consumer insights into what they liked about these top ideas that had scored well, what they didn't like, what they wished they had, and um, you know. And then we have now just identified the top idea from that work, which we're now chartering and we're gonna work on for next year's month. And then in addition to that, we took these other platform ideas and we have put them into building a pipeline that's gonna extend us over three to five years with new innovation. So, you know, just like PepsiCo, these are platformable ideas. So they'll start with one thing and then we'll add to them over the course
2: of time. Well, that is, you know, yes, John is the person that introduced us and um, we've both had the opportunity to work with him in different capacities and he always does deliver um, a great great research product and and the insights that just make the difference. So, you know, we have used a good portion of our time together uh, to talk about your experience and and kind of like to end our conversation on that same note. If you could go back in time and say something to the young Sherry that is starting off her career, you know, this is our Inspire Series in and of itself is meant to really give people inspiration to look differently at their careers and look differently at what they do and, you know, inspire everyone to, to just, you know, achieve that next level. What would you say to that young Sherry starting out her career to uh, give her that little nugget of wisdom that she could take with her?
1: Oh, it's, uh, well, it's hard to think back to like what I was like back then. But (laughs) one of the things like when I, I do, I do things with Northwestern students all the time where Um, they have these programs where you take students to dinner that was again pre-COVID where you know we would they call it dinner with 12 strangers and I always the first thing I always tell them is networking is key um, and it's networking internally and externally Um, when you're in a big company it's you're kind of blessed because there's a lot of people and it's also a revolving door so it gives you an opportunity to create a network faster and easier than you would in a smaller company, but it's a great thing. And and again, I've I've talked about it a lot, drawing on some of my network, especially as I've come to smaller companies like Delmar, where we didn't necessarily have the resources internal and they didn't know the external resources. And if I didn't know, I relied on my cross-functional counterparts from places where I've worked previously to say, hey, who should I call about this? And uh, if I always say, like, I may not know the answers myself, but I know somebody who does. And I can always find yeah. that person. So networking to me is, is absolutely key. Um, insights is king, of course. Um, it's important to invest in it. It's important to listen. It's important to really listen for what the consumer is telling you, even if it's contrary to what you believe. Um, I remember having a conversation with my boss when I was at Wrigley and we were about to embark on a project and go into focus groups. And he said, well, what do you think the answer is going to be? And I was like, well, I don't know. That's why we're doing the focus groups. And he said, well, you have to have a hypothesis. What do you think it's going to be? And I said, I walked out of his office and I walked into my insights VP's office and I'm like, can you believe Paul just said this to me? he wants me to tell him the answer before we have the focus groups what would be the point in doing the focus groups if i knew the answer so i always try to say like take yourself out of it don't think you know the answers try not to even have a hypothesis before you look at the research and then be open to what you see it's really hard to do that because everybody's got a hypothesis but there are plenty of things every day that i see that surprise me that you know um I thought, for instance, you know, when we were with uh, Gelmar, I thought CLR was going to be seen as more of a downscale product. And the reason I thought that was because we had this kind of like industrial packaging and it kind of doesn't really or didn't, does now, didn't really look very consumer-like. But when we went to qualitative last year, we heard from consumers 100%, this is a premium product. And the reason they think of it that way is because it works. So it doesn't really matter what the package looks like. It doesn't have to look like it's the prettiest package you've ever seen. That stuff works and they know it. And so therefore in their minds, it's premium. And so that's absolutely part of our brand architecture and what we stand for. So there's always surprises. It's, uh, you know, it's important though to not only open to those, but then, like i 've said a couple times, enact upon them, so you know, if the consumer is telling you something, you like let them tell you, listen to it, understand what 's important, and then take that and run with it because they do know better than you do, and they 're the ones who you're asking to spend five bucks or ten bucks or whatever it is to buy it, so that's the only way they're going to spend the money is if they believe in what the product stands for. So I guess those are kind of my overarching um, guidance is, uh, you know, networking is really important, not only from uh, building your career, but building your business. And um, also insights is so critical, but, but you got to listen and you got to actually learn from it and, and use it.
2: Yeah, I, I wish someone would have told me to listen when I started my career. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, uh, I,
0: I'm actually going to start taking that advice. Thank, <laughs> you. Oh, thank you. But uh, no, Sherry, I, I mean, this has been an incredible conversation. Probably not too surprising as, a, as such an accomplished marketer that your knack for storytelling is uh, quite incredible. Um, Thank
1: you. Thank you so you know, much. And it's been great to talk with both of you.
0: Now, And the, the, the insights too, like it, not just good stories, but, but real actionable takeaways, you know, which is really the goal here, you know, is, is to just help our audience. And, and I gotta say, I, I think there are a ton. I mean, you probably turned a lot of, of data and insight skeptics into believers over the past 60 minutes. No question.
2: Um, I hope
0: so. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, you know, I, we also, when we're closing out, like to, to give, you know, as marketers the opportunity to plug anything. You know you mentioned you've got a couple big product launches coming up. So if you want to take your 30 seconds to tell people where to go and what to do when they see it, we're not going to stop you.
1: Well, okay, great. Well, yeah, we're CLR Clear. It's uh, really is phenomenal. We have phenomenal products. And, you know, most of our products are available in all the traditional retail channels, food, drug, mask, um, hardware, home improvement. And we've got two new products that are coming out launching uh, Start Ship January 4th, Everyday Clean and Active Clear. So look for them on retail shelves everywhere. They're, they're great products. The Everyday Clean is superior to um, the biggest household cleaning products that are out there with regards to cleaning. And then Active Clear is, is as well, but also has a probiotic um, ingredient in it, which means that it's got three days cleaning power. So pretty exciting stuff.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. But again, and, thank you so much. I mean,
1: all
2: the cleaning help I can get.
1: Great. Well, I will have to get you some product when it starts shipping. Well, when we get to a good inventory position, let's put it that way. My poor uh, supply chain guy is freaking out about now.
0: And and you sold me on it being a safe product. And as somebody with a toddler running around, uh, I'd like to be on the mailing list there too. For sure. So, all right. Now that's incredible. And and Sherry, you know, again, thank you so much. and, And to the audience. We'll see you soon, and and thanks for listening. So have a great one, everybody.